You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're thrilled that you're catching up with the message this week. Let us know how we can pray for you. To do so, you can head to our website. That's www.wordoflifeag.org and scroll down to the tile that says Need Prayer. We'd love to stand with you and support you in prayer throughout the week. Come on, let's dive into this week's message from Pastor Tom J.J. Wood. That was great. And so as we're having uh, some focus on the importance and how wonderful it is to be a part of the team, I really hope that as you kind of hear those stories from people that, um, you know, something just kind of catches your imagination, something kind of grabs a hold of you and you think, you know what, this is a great way for me to be involved. And uh, I've never believed that church should be something that happens at people, but rather that we are a community of faith, which means we get together, we find a way to dig in and be a part of moving the mission forward together. Something cool happened today. We started, um, Meg and I, we started something that we wanted to do. Um, for a while, we were finally able to work with um, Pastor Lisa and Luke and a few other ministry directors, and we were able to rearrange some schedules so that everybody gathered in this room at nine o'clock, so all the people serving on all the different areas of ministry, all the different teams, were invited to be a part of all team meeting here this morning, and so it was great just to be able to get together and hear people praying for each other, and you know, people on one team praying for the kids' ministry, and people on kids' ministry praying for the creative, and all those things. It was a wonderful thing. So nine o'clock every Sunday morning, we're going to be in here, and it's for everyone that is a part of the teams to come in and pray for services coming up. So it was awesome. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Are we all glad we came to church this morning? Yeah. I am delighted that we're able to come and be here and hang out. As I was getting ready this week, I was reminded of a book that I read a number of years ago now. It was written by a guy called Scott McKnight. And Scott McKnight is a New Testament professor of a Bible college in Illinois. And Scott McKnight, in his book, he writes that there's a test that he would give all the incoming students, so all the freshman students into the Bible college would be given a test at the beginning of uh, the new semester. And so I've got a couple of samples of the questions that he would ask, uh, and talking about what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus would be? And it's yes or no questions. So I want to read a couple of these examples to you. The first one is, uh, this is talking about Jesus, does he prefer to go his own way rather than act by the rules? Does he, again, talking about Jesus, often feel fed up? Can he easily get some life into a dull party? Does he often feel lonely? And then as the test moves on, it progresses and it changes so that no longer are the questions being asked about Jesus, but the questions are asked about you, and the same questions are asked, except it's changed from being about Jesus to being about you as the student coming in. So the question becomes, do you prefer to go your own way rather than act by the rules? Do you often feel fed up? Can you easily get some life into a dull party? Can you often feel lonely? And also in these questions, there's also some uh, sort of political kind of questions and some things about perspective on life and things. And it's asking the same questions about Jesus. And then it's pretty sneakily asking you about you. And do you think about this? And what ends up happening inevitably is the majority of students, they believe that Jesus is just like them. What they think about themselves, what they think about their view of life, how they perceive the world around them, how they think their idea of right and wrong and how we should navigate the world, all those things. What inevitably happens is that the students overwhelmingly believe that their understanding of the world is exactly the same as Jesus's understanding and beliefs about the world. And as people who want to become faithful and effective followers of Jesus, we need to resist the temptation of morphing Jesus into who we want him to be and who we think he should be. Now, with that, there's at least two problems that I could think of this week. The first one is, Jesus won't be morphed into anything. 
He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is king. He is a king for all eternity. He will not fit what I want him to fit. And the second thing is that the best thing possible is for Jesus to be exactly the kind of king and the kind of Lord and the kind of savior that he is. You cannot improve upon perfection. This means any false perception, any misunderstanding, any faulty assumption about Jesus would mean that we're not viewing him in the perfection that he is, but rather it's an inferior viewpoint of who Jesus is. So if our lives are gonna be centered around Jesus as our Lord, then it's vital we keep coming back to who he truly is to make sure we're not holding a distorted view. It's essential that we keep coming back and reminding ourselves of who Jesus really is, the power of his message, the eternal impact of the gospel, and how meeting the savior of the world is truly life-changing. Now, um, also this week, I went to uh, the one place you can be guaranteed to get rock-solid, bulletproof theology, Instagram, and I read this, this is actually, I'm being facetious, but it's actually really good. I read this this week. When the Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding, which is lifted from the book of Proverbs, the Bible is being serious. Your heart is deceitful. Your emotions fluctuate. Your understanding does not see the overall big picture. God never lies. God never changes. God knows all. Trust him. And that is from world famous theologian, trust God, bro. But it's essential that we keep coming back and reminding ourselves of who Jesus really is, and that's what we're going to dive into today. And the, part, uh, the passage of Scripture we're going to look into, it's a few verses, but it's taken from a much larger uh, collection of uh, Scriptures, and it's part of what's known as the farewell discourse from John's Gospel. And John 14 through 17 uh, is one long sermon spoken by Jesus. And if you have a Bible where the words of Jesus are printed in red, which a lot of Bibles do, you'll notice that John 14 through 17 is almost entirely red. And this single teaching uh, of Jesus takes up four out of John's 21 chapters. So there's a significant percentage of John's book that he's devoted to this message from Jesus. And it's immediately following the washing of the disciples' feet as Jesus is about to travel towards the Garden of Gethsemane before being arrested and crucified. So his very long sermon is given, and a few directions that are vital that the disciples need to grab a hold of is what Jesus wants them to get. And so as we read this, remember this is a smaller section of a much larger teaching, but there's a few verses I think are helpful for us today. As we think about focusing and not distorting a weird view of Jesus, but rather focusing on who he truly is and how incredible he really is. So John 15, starting verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And the theme of love each other as I have loved you was uh, started and first mentioned by Jesus uh, a little earlier as, before, uh, as he's about to launch, in, launch into this much longer sermon, John 13, 34. So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And it's delivered immediately following the foot washing of the disciples. And in light of the foot washing, Jesus says this, that as I have loved you, you love others. When Jesus says, I have loved you, love others, he's not just talking about the foot washing. 
It's talking about three years of living with these people. It's three years of being together. Three years of miracles. Three years of listening to Jesus teach and living on, alongside him in the everyday moments of life. That the love that you have seen and felt and experienced from me remain in that love. And from the translation I read, it has the word remain, and other translations of the Bible says the word abide. And it's said three different times in the passage that we read, but in the whole of the farewell discourse, it's said a total of 14 times. And that word abide or remain is not to depart, not to leave, to continue to be present and not abandon. So as Jesus is saying, remain in my love, do not depart or leave the love of God. Continue to be present in the love of God. Don't abandon the love of God, but rather do everything to center our lives around remaining in his love. And I wrote this down, and it was really helpful for me. It's a mouthful. It's not something that rolls right off the tongue, but I really found this helpful as I wrote this down this week, so I'll share it with you. The love of God is not one aspect of the message of Jesus, but rather the central theme, defining quality, and motivation of the gospel. The love of God is not one aspect of the message of Jesus, but rather the central theme, defining quality, and motivation of the gospel. In the verses we read, we're presented with two ideas that help bring understanding of how we're to live and remain in the love of God. The first thing is that Jesus talks about is how the Father loved Jesus is how Jesus loves us. We're also told that how Jesus loves us is how we are to love one another, which brings us two questions. From John 15, 9 and 15, 12, how does the Father love Jesus? And how does Jesus love his followers? Answering these questions will help us understand and apply the love that God has for us, and in turn, how we are to show that love to others. John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And how does the Father love Jesus? How does the Father love Jesus? Well, the Father gave him everything he needed. He spoke to him regularly gave guidance and direction, gave him strength, gave him value. He encouraged and supported. And Jesus trusted, loved, and was completely committed to the Father. I spent a good amount of time this week thinking about this, and it's a thought that I still hope I have in my mind and still sort of think through because it really does astound me. But the relationship between the Father and the Son, God the Father and God the Son in Jesus, is complete and utterly unaffected by sin. There is no sin in either of them. Human relationships, they're affected by self-centeredness. They're affected by regret and deception and pettiness. But Jesus points to this example of his relationship with the Father, of perfect love, trust, respect, and honor, and lets the disciples know, this is how I want it to be between you and me. Of course, the problem is, we bring ourselves to the party. We bring our self-centeredness. We bring our regrets, we bring our deception, we bring our pettiness. And the promise is, we have and what we see throughout the ministry of Jesus is you bring all that mess to me, I'll help clean it up and set you free. The sin that separates you from God will be dealt with on the cross so we can have relationship unaffected by sin. John 14, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Within mind that Jesus is saying that the love that I have for you, you can see it modeled, you can see it showcased by how me and the Father interact and the love that is between me and the Father. And he goes on to say, my command, love each other as I have loved you. So the second question, how did Jesus love the disciples? 
What do we see in the pages of the New Testament? What do we see in the lives of believers all around the world? We see Jesus cleans up our messes. We see that Jesus sacrifices for us, that he's a patient teacher, that he lifts people out of desperate situations. He brings relief and healing, that he accepted the rejected, that he is a giver of hope, that he's a restorer. And the most significant moment of all was uh, in the crucifixion the ultimate display and demonstration of God's love. Now, I'm, uh, I'm certainly not an art critic. I'm certainly not an expert on these things at all. But there's a painting that I think is really interesting truth to it that is worth sharing. In 1951, there's a painting by Salvador Dali. Many of you all know him. He's an abstract painter called uh, Christ of St. John of the Cross. And I'm unsure how Salvador Dali would have defined his faith in Jesus. And I'm also unsure about what drove him to paint this depiction of the crucifixion. There's a story that he had a, a crazy dream and sort of woke up and started painting. Um, but there's something in this painting is interesting, and I think there's an understanding here that'd be helpful to us. So let's go ahead, check out this painting. So there's the picture from Salvador Dali of Christ of St. John of the Cross. And I'm not an art critic, but I'm immediately drawn to the irregular perspective that you have. Um, but if we do a close-up, and if we can go ahead and cut to the close-up of one of the hands, you'll notice, and it's the same on both hands, this is just where it's possibly clearest, there's no nail in the hand. Now, we know that's historically inaccurate. We know from the Bible that there were indeed nails driven through the hands of Jesus. But in this image that's being presented, this artwork that's being created to try and show something about the crucifixion that I think is interesting and helpful for us today, if it's not the nails keeping Jesus on the cross... What is it? If it's not the nails, the reason, the only conclusion that I can come to is the love that Jesus has for you and for me. That's what kept him on the cross. Physically speaking, historically speaking, it's the nails that physically held him up there. But truthfully, what kept him on the cross was the love for you and for me. And as someone who believes the message of Jesus and that he went to the cross for me, it is right and appropriate and logical that it changes our view and our understanding of every aspect of life, including the challenge from Jesus to love others the way that he loves us, especially when we consider that he loves us the way that the Father loves him. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's worth considering what does Jesus mean by my commands here? Jesus said a lot of things and gave a lot of commands and the Bible as a whole says a lot of things and has a lot of commands. But in light of the current conversation, in light of what has been said to the disciples, surely the command that he's pointing to is just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And that appears to be what is being talked about here. And the promise is not only do we continue to remain in the love and the relationship with God, but that also we will find incredible joy. And I want to share with you, and I believe wholeheartedly, that there is nothing more contrary to this in modern culture. In the world we live in, and consequently the world that we are called to love as Jesus has loved us, we have an unbelievable temptation, day in, day out, to be consumed with self-centeredness. Now, I don't struggle with this very much, um, Megan does. <laughs> if this is the last time you see me, there she is. 
I'm not making eye contact. <laughs> but here, Jesus, by saying, love others as I have loved you, this is how you find joy. This is how you remain in my love. This cuts through 21st century culture. True joy is to love others, thereby fulfilling the commands of Jesus and to enjoy a loving relationship with Father and finding joy in all of this. And while the world is screaming louder and louder to feed our self-centeredness, Jesus cuts through that and tells us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto finding joy in loving others. And I spent a, a few minutes online this week looking into it a little more, and I was wondering if I would find anything interesting or helpful. And what was interesting is that the psychologists and sociologists are not even questioning whether people are more self-centered today than they were in past generations. They've stopped asking whether people are more self-centered. It's now just assumed. It is now just widely accepted. It's not even up for debate anymore. They've moved on from trying to figure out, are people more self-centered? And rather, the research and the finance and the funding has gone to try and figure out why this has happened and how this has happened and what on earth we can do about it. It's talking about writing the, the problems that this causes, this self-centeredness. But what it means for us is that as a generation of followers of Jesus, it will be a bigger obstacle to reflect the love of God than other generations that have gone before us. And if we wanted to talk about the challenges facing the church, maybe we should be more alarmed about this one than whether our tax exemption status will be compromised. This generation of Christians, we will have a tougher fight than any generation that's gone before us to reflect the love of God because we will face greater temptation to keep our eyes on ourselves and off of other people. That is the temptation we have. We can be up in arms about tax exemption status. This is a much bigger fight for you and I. It is a much bigger fight. Just don't tell the trustees. We need to be ready to stand out, resist culture, intentionally decide, hold ourselves accountable so that we love each other the way he loved us. And somehow, the promise is, this is where true joy will come from. Joy isn't just surface or shallow. It's not just happy. Joy and happy are, are distinguishable. See, happy is when you're driving, and as long as there's no crisis on the road, and a song you really like comes on the radio. That's happy. You're driving along. And anybody else do um, air drums? Like, air guitar is for amateurs, but like, air drums is where it's really at, you know what I'm saying? The truth is, you're driving along, a song you like comes on the radio, you keep driving, as soon as the song's done, the happiness takes a nosedive. Joy is you're driving in a car that you like, with people you want to be with, going somewhere you want to go, and there's no problems on the road. It's not wrapped up in circumstances. It's not wrapped up in what's happening here and now. Joy cuts through all of it. Because it's a state of being as you are on the journey. Happiness is dependent on the journey going your way. Joy doesn't matter what's happening around you. You may have fights going on. There may be things that are unfair happening. There may be all kinds of crazy going on. If you are progressing, if you have joy, you can keep on going just because you are on the journey and the joy is in you. Happiness is dependent on all the factors coming together. Joy is deeper and greater than happiness. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it was of course a great price. It was not a display of weakness, but of strength. 
The cross is weakness if Jesus did everything he did to get out of it. But because he went willingly, it may appear like humiliation, shame, and disgrace. But until you believe and understand that he went to the cross willingly. I was reading a story recently about uh, an immigrant who came to the United States and he worked at an entry-level job, an, an unglamorous job at Harvard University for decades. The reason was that all Harvard employees, no matter what status, no matter where they are on the, on the ladder, they get to send their kids to the college for free. And as of today, this man has graduated five college graduations for all five of his kids. Working an entry-level job for decades, it might look unremarkable. Some people would even look down on it and even think poorly of this man. But when we hear it was to send his kids to one of the most well-respected schools in the world and give them a strong start in their professional life, we see it as a strength because of the sacrifice. It's not weakness, it's strength. It's strength demonstrated in sacrifice. The cross appears like weakness, that the religious leaders manipulated the situation and they crafted a scheme that they outsmarted Jesus and his followers, that the Romans came and they overpowered him. But when you believe that Jesus did this willingly, it's incredible strength. I would even say admirable strength. And I'll just read through some of the final moments before Jesus was arrested, just to see their strength on display. Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over, and pray, uh, over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. These guys are legends. <laughs> he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them for a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Jesus knew that he was about to go to the cross. He knew Judas, one of his closest friends, is about to betray him. And he knew this was the only way. Carrying on, verse 47. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Jesus said, go ahead and do what you have come for. There's no sign of him trying to resist arrest. Quite the opposite. A disciple in John's gospel tells us that it was Peter started attacking them with a sword. And Jesus says, put away your sword. 
Then he lets them all know, I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But Jesus knew that the cross is how he would fulfill the promises of the scriptures. The broken relationship between God and humanity would never be healed unless a price was paid, and he is the only one that could pay the price. Which is why Paul goes on to the Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But who, we who are saved know it is the very power of God. The cross may look like weakness and humiliation. It might look like foolishness to think that anything good could come from that. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest moment in all of history. Hallelujah. If one person claps, we all have to. Come on, somebody. And for those of us who believe and are saved, it is truly the power of God. It is the cross and resurrection that is a life-changing message. And it is God's ultimate demonstration of love. Let me read those verses from John 15 again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now I'm going to make a statement and then I'm going to take a moment to explain it. Jesus is the standard, but you are the measuring stick. Jesus is the standard, but you are the measuring stick. Jesus positions himself as the standard of what it means to love people. Imitate me. Do what I'm doing. Love people the way I've loved people. The way that you have received love from me. Show that to others. But we own the responsibility to measure if we are being faithful. We own the responsibility to think and reflect and have confidence in how much love we have received from God and let that transform us. Our human interactions should reflect the way that God has treated us. There's a parable that Jesus shares about a servant who's been forgiven a great big debt, a debt that he could never ever pay by himself. And he's forgiven the debt, but then there are people who owe him a debt and he demands repayment. And the point of the parable is that this servant has completely missed the point. He has completely missed the love that God has shown him. He has failed to let the incredible love and mercy and forgiveness and grace that God has shown him transform his heart and transform the way he interacts with the people around him. It didn't change his heart, and he completely missed what God was wanting to do. He was a bad measuring stick because he measured the wrong thing. This means that how we live this out, it may become difficult to define, it may become personal and dynamic, but it's an invitation to consider and reconsider how good God has been to me, and in turn, what that means for how I live my life every day, specifically how I interact with the people around me. Jesus is the standard we look to, and he asks us to measure in ourselves, how has he moved? How has he operated? How has he changed my life? How has he been good to me? How has he shown me goodness? How has he shown me love? How has he shown me forgiveness? what this has meant for us, and in turn, how we can reflect that to others. There are examples from the New Testament of people that got it. We've got Zacchaeus. He gave back massive portions of the money that he'd ripped off from people as a tax collector. Paul, the apostle, he changed his mission from going to persecute and put Christians in jail and possibly even to death to spreading the gospel all over the world. We have James, who went from complete disdain for what his big brother Jesus was up to to being one of the pillars of the early church. Encountering the love of God should transform us. And the ownership is on us as to how we live this out and apply it. We are to measure within ourselves. We are the measuring stick of how God has been good to us and how we can reflect that to others. 
The invitation from Jesus is to reflect and dig deep, realize what he's done, and let that realization drive us. The right motivation for loving others and sharing the message of Jesus is a deep awareness of what he's done for us. To reflect this, there are a few things we can do. There's any number of things we can do. We can be quick to show the love of God. We can forgive. We can be patient with people. We can show kindness. We can restrain ourselves online. We can tell the truth. We can make sure we don't get tangled up in gossip. When faced with a gray area of integrity, we can err on the side that will cost us. We can make sure we're not a slacker at work. We can look for a way to help someone out. Is this easy? No. But it becomes easier when you think about how much more Jesus has done for us than this. The love of God is not one aspect of the message of Jesus, but rather the central theme, defining quality and motivation of the gospel. How does the Father love Jesus? How does Jesus love his followers? No self-centeredness, no pettiness, no jealousy, no deceit. For us, it means finding joy and rejecting self-centeredness. Remaining in his love. Remembering that the cross, the ultimate demonstration of love, is a remarkable display of strength, not weakness. So us showing love to others around us, fulfilling Jesus' command is not only the path to joy, not only how we remain in the love of God, but also an incredible sign of strength. A couple of questions. Maybe this is helpful for you to write these down and maybe think about and pray about this week. But the first one is, how does the love of God change my outlook on life? How does the love of God change my outlook on life? That God would clean up our mess, that God would sacrifice for me, that God is a patient teacher that lifts us out of desperate situations. That is God who has brought relief and healing to us. That we've been accepted even though others may reject us. That we've been given hope, we've been restored. And that the crucifixion is truly the greatest moment of all of history. And it means that we can have a healed and whole relationship with God. The second question, how can we show the significance of the gospel to those around us? And each and every one of us may have a different answer to that question. But how can we show the significance of the gospel to those around us? how God has moved in our lives, what he's done, how he's helped us clean up our mess, how he has set us free. How can we show that to others? There's a verse, it's my favorite verse in the Bible. I shared it with you last week. I'm gonna share it with you again today. Romans 5.8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. There's a lot in that verse, but something that keeps coming back to me and keeps impacting me every time I think about it. It was while we were sinners. It was before we tried to clean ourselves up. It was before we asked for forgiveness. It was before we tried to behave ourselves. It was when we were on our very worst day, the messiest of the mess. That's when Jesus died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still completely lost in our own self-centeredness, Jesus died for us. 
And the promise is, He is committed to walk alongside us and help us clean ourselves up and get free of all the nonsense and all the junk of life so that we can live in true freedom with Him as our Lord and Savior. Humanity has a problem. The problem is sin. I have a list of regrets. I have a list of sins. So do you. Your list might look different from my list, but we all have a list. And that list disqualifies us from a relationship with God. God loves us so much that while we were still sinners, He sent His Son to pay the price that you and I could never, ever pay. To pay the price we could never, ever pay. God loves humanity so much that He sent the Son to become humanity so that He could pay humanity's price for you and for me. If you believe this, it is life-changing life-changing. You may be here today and you may have never heard the message of Jesus before and you may have heard it many, many times, but for some reason today it made sense, ways that it didn't before. Maybe there's something from today that just grabbed a hold of your head and your heart and you're just like, you know what, I, I, I believe that God is for real. I believe that Jesus is who He says He is. And for some reason you're at that point today where you're like, you know what, I'm not following God, but I should be. I want to start. And if that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. I want to invite everyone here, if you want to just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, it's just to give some discretion to people around you and give us a chance to focus on what really matters right now. But if you'd be honest enough and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start. I'd love to pray for you. This is both in person and online. And if this is you today, I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you. I promise we're not going to make you do anything weird or anything uncomfortable, but I'd love to know who I'm praying for. So if this is you today, could you just put your hand in the air just so I know who we're praying for? Thank you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else here? Amen. A homie just pushed the button that says, I raise my hand. Anybody else in the room, you just want to say, Tom, when you pray, pray for me. I'd love to pray with you today. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Come on, Word of Life, can we please celebrate people making the greatest decision we could ever make today? We're going to pray a prayer together, and we do this every week. And I'm going to say a line, and if you wouldn't mind saying it back, and if you're one of those people that put your hand up, say this full of faith, believing that praying a prayer like this gets you on the first steps in this incredible journey of following Jesus. So come on, everybody, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus. I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's congratulate those people making a decision. Let's welcome back Megan and Jonathan. Thanks for listening. For more resources and ways to get involved, visit our website. That's www.wordoflifeag.org.